Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. We are broadcasting live today from the 2017 Pennsylvania Farm Show in Harrisburg. We do this every year and use the program to learn more about the state of agriculture in Pennsylvania. Agriculture is described as the state's number one industry, employing one in seven and having a $67 billion economic impact. There are more than 62,000 farms in Pennsylvania, and most have under 100 acres, although the average Pennsylvania farm has about 124 acres. We'll be speaking with several people over the next hour about farming in Pennsylvania. Our first guest today is Pennsylvania Secretary of Agriculture, Russell Redding. Secretary Redding, always a joy to see you here at the, at the farm show. It's great to be with you, Scott. Welcome. You know, last year was the 100th, was the 100th farm show, so obviously this is the 101st. But uh, the weather has been, has been pretty good. We always talk about the farm show weather. How have things been going so far with this farm show as far as people attending from across Pennsylvania, maybe even out of state? Yeah, the attendance has been great. Uh, you know, we, we certainly hit a high point last year with uh, the 100, and uh, so we had a bump in, in attendance last year, but this would be certainly normal attendance, strong. Uh, weather's been good, no real sort of deterrence uh, statewide, so we feel pretty fortunate. Always like to get uh, a status update on the show itself, and the weather later this week, I think it's supposed to rain a little bit, but uh, no weather that would keep people away. Anything different, you always introduce you know, new exhibits, new ideas for the farm show. What about this year? Yeah, we did a couple of things. Um, we, we took uh, uh, you know, advantage of, of making changes last year, and, and that gave us some license to sort of change some things this year. You know, where we are uh, positioned today in the Expo Hall, uh, this stage area actually was used for our opening ceremony, uh, and that was intentional because we talk about how to connect consumers and, and, and the farmers in Pennsylvania. Let's do that right on the main floor. Uh, we also are using this stage area for some 101. So it's a 101st farm show. We're going to do some Ag 101, borrow the nomenclature of education, right? Do some teaching. So uh, you'll, you'll have a chance to, to hear about uh, Conestoga wagons and hex signs and rabbits and alpacas and good stuff. That's new for this year. And to note that our birds are back, right? right. The, the poultry is back, took uh, a pause last year. Uh, so they're back. Uh, the pause last year was uh, the the fear of avian flu, avian influenza. It never materialized here in Pennsylvania, did it? Not in Pennsylvania. So this is sort of a real-time discussion. You know, we were very fortunate last year. We like to believe that, you know, good planning was part of that, but uh, also... Uh, we just didn't uh, have the contact with either live poultry from around the world and or the wild birds, which were the, were the concern. However, uh, as we look at the globe today, uh, there is a different strain of high-path AI sort of playing out in Asia and Europe. Uh, very concerned about that. And particularly since we're on a flyway with wild birds right over Pennsylvania, uh, that if they land here, they can bring it with them. So we're really concerned about that. Yeah, it is difficult uh, to control the flight of, uh, of birds. By the way, as the secretary mentioned our location, uh, we are at the Lancaster Farm stage in the Weiss uh, ex Exhibition Hall. New location for us, as the secretary mentioned, uh, right in the very center of everything, right off the food court, which is one of the first places I know that uh, so many visitors to the farm show uh, like to, to visit. So we're very easy to find. Stop by, say hello. We have some uh, chairs here that you can watch the broadcast and maybe even talk to some of our guests uh, a little bit later. Uh, Secretary, as I said, I always like to use this opportunity uh, to talk about the state of agriculture in Pennsylvania. Uh, 
I, there are some national issues that I want to bring up in just a few minutes. But before we do that, challenges facing Pennsylvania farmers. What are some of the major challenges facing Pennsylvania farmers today? Well, I can tell you, every farmer was pleased to see 2016 uh, go away. It's done. Uh, it is one of those moments, uh, last year particularly, where the markets uh, for our commodities, so from dairy to you know, grain and beef and all of that, it was a down cycle. Uh, and we're still there. Uh, and that is uh, a reminder of our linkage to what happens around the world. Right? The, the conflict that we've seen, the trade agreements that are either in place or being negotiated, um, they're, uh, you know, they're, the markets are very difficult right now. So I'd say economics is, is always there, but this year particularly just given what's happened, the net farm income um, is a concern. We mentioned the high path AI that has not diminished uh, or we're still in that concern. Um, we're also uh, in, in this sort of time when we're watching these markets change from uh, direct market uh, from a commodity market, right? And I think that's a good thing okay, for Pennsylvania. Can explain that a little bit? Yeah, direct market. You know, so we've seen this resurgence in folks wanting to know who's feeding them and, and where's my food coming from and where did, how is it produced? All of those are great questions. Uh, but they come with, you know, a, a different sort of, uh, you know, adoption of production practices and particularly a different level of engagement. Um, and the commodity markets being those things that are commodity-based, right? So we get away from just talking of, of uh, agricultural product as a, you know, the grains or the, or the dairy or whatever as a commodity. So that is a shift that's happened, uh, happening, and, and continues to sort of drive conversations. And we're trying to, to figure out how to adjust to that as the farmers are. But we're in a great spot, right? We're in, in a place that has uh, 13 million people roughly and another 50 million people in the marketplace. That's a good thing for us. So that's certainly a change that's, that's occurring. Um, and then with uh, you know, the, the challenges of, of the international markets and the trade agreements, I would just sort of put back in view you know, 20 to 30% of our production uh, is someplace other than the United States you know, for, for export, someplace other than the United States of America. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I, I'm curious about uh, what you were talking about going direct rather than uh, commodity-based. Uh, when you say farmers and you, uh, those in agriculture, in the uh, agriculture business, are still trying to feel it out to see how this, this plays out, give us a more kind of a, a practical explanation of how that works. Yeah, so uh, yeah, you, let's take sort of apples for example, right? So uh, you, you walk into the grocery store and you've got any number of uh, options for apples. Um, so if you're a commodity producer, you're producing apples and sort of pushing that into the retail market space. Uh, but what increasingly is happening both at the retail point uh, as a result of listening to consumers, they want to know not that just their apples, but what uh, variety of apple and where do they come from and how were they produced, right? So we're going through that right now. We've got a dairy industry that has been generally a commodity product, right? Fluid milk, cheese, ice cream. Uh, the changes that are occurring, it's not just about sort of the fluid milk, it's the type of fluid milk, uh, what, uh, how is it produced, is it organic, is it conventional, is it whatever, right? Uh, we're going through that right now. Uh, that is a good thing in the sense that you finally have folks who are you know, end, end buyers, uh, we're in the food business, so having them appreciate that, but also ask some really great questions about who is feeding me and how does that play out in the landscape of Pennsylvania is our issue. How does that play out? And, and how do we connect uh, the consumers with those farmers? Uh, and here's the trick, is how do you actually extract value from that? 
right? This is an economic enterprise. Uh, and, and how do you do that in a marketplace that um, is growing to appreciate uh, diversification and, and, and segmentation of product? Uh, but we want to, and we use the farm show to do this, is sort of get people thinking about Pennsylvania product, how to find PA products in the marketplace, and that PA preferred label that we have is critical too. So, from what you describe, is it accurate to say that uh, this is being driven by for health reasons, that people are concerned about where it's coming from, or do they want to buy local? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I think there's a, a sort of a combination of factors. I, I think for some it is about health. Uh, others, it is really recognizing that what we do as consumers and our purchasing decisions uh, have an impact on the landscape and our community. Uh, that, that is clearly a piece of it. Uh, and you have this great question being asked of uh, wh where did it come from and is it from Pennsylvania and, and if it is, who, who produced it? Uh, that's, that's driving that conversation irrespective of the production practice. Uh, they just want to know that it's a local product. When you say that uh, Pennsylvania farmers were glad to see 2016 go, uh, what about prices? Uh, were farmers, I mean, whenever I hear that, uh, you know, a year was not good for uh, Pennsylvania farmers, I think of a couple different things. One is weather, uh, you know, the kind of production, you know, something like avian flu that can have an impact on yeah. uh, poultry. But I also think about prices. As you said, it is an economic enterprise, and this is how uh, farmers make their livings. What about prices over 2016? Yeah, they, they were low prices. Right, so uh, in some areas, uh, the dairy industry, which is our largest segment of agricultural production, uh, you know, the margins were, um, uh, in some cases, negative margins. Uh, just be, you know, it was the costing prices, more to produce. It was costing, yeah. So for every uh, every gallon of milk produced, there was actually uh, a loss, right, at the farm level, which is not a good thing. Um, you know, the grain markets are uh, not quite at margin, but low. Um, you know, so the prices were uh, were down this year, and that's why I say for 2016, difficult year. Uh, and it's not because of what Pennsylvania's market was. It's because we're attached to the national and international market. Uh, it's it's part uh, the, the productivity. I mean, there's actually more product out there. That's part of our challenge in dairy. But it's also what happened in Russia, what happened in Europe. It's the Brexit uh, issue. It's put a full set of discussions in motion about trade relationships. Um, so I'll just say on dairy, exports from Pennsylvania are about 13% of total production. Uh, that's what they've normally been. 2016, they were about 7%. So you take that excess, and that pushes that price down. Well, let's get into uh, some of these national issues that uh, we had. In fact, the news has been dominated over the past year by the presidential election. Donald Trump was elected. Over the past uh, month and a half or so, since two months since uh, the election, he has been naming uh, prospective cabinet members. One cabinet position that he has not named yet is the Secretary of Agriculture. Yeah. Does that provide a level of uncertainty for you, for farmers, the ag industry, because you don't know what policy is going to be followed? Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty um, about what that appointment looks like. You know, we have been fortunate with uh, the current administration, Secretary Vilsack, who's a former governor, uh, and at the time there were sort of reservations whether a governor could be a Secretary of Agriculture. He turned out to be a phenomenal secretary. So I think it set a new standard for what's expected and hoped for. 
but without the secretary, we don't know what the issues of trade are going to look like. I mean, what are the issues of immigration, which are the two issues, without ever saying the word agriculture during the campaign, uh, were two of the most important and are the most important sort of activities and concerns going forward with the new administration. We don't know where he stands on that. Well, trade was one of the, the key issues that uh, candidate Trump ran on, uh, talking about uh, the trade imbalance, as, as he described it, uh, with Mexico and some other countries. Uh, you, you mentioned this, but uh, uh, farm exports, about 20% of what is produced uh, across the country, I think maybe a little bit higher here in Pennsylvania, uh, does go out of the country. So you have to be keeping a close eye on what the administration is doing with trade. What concerns you the most? Well, we're very concerned. So, you know, NAFTA uh, is a great example. So uh, with, with uh, Canada and Mexico, uh, they are two of our three largest markets. I mean, Canada is our largest market. Uh, China's our second. Mexico's our third. So you have two of those three that are in play. Uh, you know, doing business with Canada is like doing business with Ohio for us, right? It's just next door. Yeah. Uh, it's a natural flow for us. So we're very concerned about what that looks like. And then, you know, when you get to say whether we should be or not be in the, in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you know, if you look at the 30-year growth, the growth in population comes out of those areas. So if you're in the food business as we are, you say, where's the available stomach, right? right? The stomach someplace other than, than where we are. Let's make sure we're part of that discussion. So what would you like to see personally as far as trade goes, that would benefit Pennsylvania farmers? Yeah, so I would want to see a very clear statement about the value of NAFTA uh, for us. Uh, that would be reassuring. Uh, now, if there's issues within that that you want to sort of talk about and, and quote unquote renegotiate, let's, let's look at those very carefully to understand that there's, there's a, you know, it's a, a chain reaction will be set off by, by renegotiating what that looks like. That's number one. Two is, uh, I wouldn't be so quick to discount the, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, would want to see a, a really thoughtful conversation about what we produce and where are those available markets. Uh, that would be, be important. The other really key issue for me uh, in Pennsylvania and ag agriculture is the immigration concern. And again, the uncertainty of, the expectation will be that the, the sector of agriculture will be in that discussion in a meaningful way. Uh, not just about the immigration, but also the workforce and even capital needs of agriculture. So many issues. Uh, Secretary of uh, Agriculture here in Pennsylvania, Russell Redding. Secretary Redding, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Great to see you. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Chesapeake Bay Foundation released its State of the Bay report last week, and even though most areas showed improvement, the report pointed out that Pennsylvania agriculture hasn't met its goals for reducing pollution. The Pennsylvania Farm Bureau, which represents the state's farmers, also put out a report, or actually Penn State did, uh, saying farmers are doing much more to comply and reduce pollution, but aren't getting credit for it. Joining us is Mark O'Neill, who is the Media and Strategic Communications Director with the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. And before we get to talking about the Chesapeake Bay and agriculture here in Pennsylvania, just want to remind you, if you're just tuning in, and nearby the Pennsylvania Farm Show, that Smart Talk is broadcasting live from the Pennsylvania Farm Show at the Lancaster Farm Stage in the Weiss Exposition Center. Stop by and say hello. All right, Mark, so you point out, or this Penn State uh, study found what you called a flaw. Tell me about that. 
Well, Scott, you may recall I've been on your show a couple times before yes. and this issue has come up and what we've talked about is how Pennsylvania farmers have done many conservation projects on their farm, things they've spent a lot of their own money on to improve waterways, to improve water that flows into the Chesapeake Bay as well as waterways right here in Pennsylvania, but they've never received credit for it because the EPA model, known as the Total Maximum Daily Load, TMDL. Yeah, there, uh, are, there, there are a lot of terms yes. that people have to remember. Uh, basically, it, it's a computer model that says, well, there's so much land, so many animals, there should be so much runoff, and the only thing that they calculate in their model, what farmers do, is projects in which the government has helped pay for cost share programs. And even in cost share programs, farmers still put a lot of their own money to implement these projects that uh, you know, keep the nitrogen in the ground and reduce uh, runoff and what have you. So what this report found is that what we've been saying all along, farmers have been doing a heck of a lot on their own to improve the environment. And uh, you know, there's, uh, I could look through and give you all the numbers, but a lot of them have to do with nutrient management, manure management, but projects that help keep the soil in place, uh, keep water in place, stop pollutants from going into the watershed. And what we want is for this information, which has been collected, now to be accepted by EPA, used in its model, to more fairly show the good job that farmers have been doing. You know, there's a little bit of irony here in that Way back when, when the Pencil, or excuse me, the Chesapeake Bay cleanup began, uh, there were many farmers, not just in Pennsylvania, but in the other states as well, that said that you know we, we need some money to do this. That uh, we just heard from Secretary Redding that we're on tight budgets, we can't afford to do some of these things. Well, now there's some money flowing to farmers, but you're saying that that unless a farmer is taking advantage of that money coming from the feds of the federal government, that they're not getting credit for these things. Yeah, I mean, that is, that's what's so amazing about it is farmers have put so much money. And with some of these projects, it's not just something on a piece of paper, it's making corrections to barnyards, uh, checking out what's going on with, with barns, with land, doing practices that stop runoff, uh, whether it's no-till farming or riparian buffers, forest buffers, uh, you know, putting the fencing along streams, all of this stuff, which costs a lot of money, farmers are doing on their own. I think the, the, one of the major points is that this is something that we've been talking about for more than a decade, and this survey is basically showing not only are farmers doing this stuff, but they have been doing it for years. Uh, there's been some reports saying that uh, you know things in the Bay are just slightly improving, but if you look at the United States Geological Service's latest report, USGS, which basically measures all of the rivers going into the Bay watershed, including the Susquehanna River, the biggest one, it's been showing major improvements over the last 10 years. And for some reason, this story never seems to get publicized. And they're actually testing the water. They're not using a computer and put it, punching in numbers. They're actually going out and testing the water of these rivers that go into the Susquehanna, and there's been major improvements that still have not been recognized. By the way, uh, we will have uh, uh, representatives of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation on Smart Talk tomorrow in our studio talking about that report card. Okay, so Mark, when you, the report card itself, as you said, as you just said that uh, it has said that there have been some slight improvements, but it said that Pennsylvania, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it said Pennsylvania agriculture is way behind 
when it comes to meeting their goals. I'm trying to get my head around this. When, what measure are they using for that when they say that Pennsylvania agriculture is way behind its, its goals? What they're using is they, remember, they are also a, an organization that basically, number one goal is improve the bed. So it's, it's not a government agency. It's, a, it's an association, like Farm Bureau is an association, and they're representing the Bay, and they're using numbers that they use and science that they use. What we're saying is we'll go with the independent United States Geological Services, which actually is part of EPA, where they're actually testing the water. Also, this report that they're using is not based on all of this new information that came out in the Penn State study. Uh, and then when you talk about money, Actually, there has been very little money which has gone to farmers over the years in terms of making real on-the-ground improvements. There's been a lot of money. Well, how come the water treatment facilities are ahead? Well, people forget that about six years ago, the state of Pennsylvania and citizens voted in favor of supplying money. So taxpayers all across the state have put hundreds of millions of dollars into water treatment plants for them to make improvements on what we call point sources, while farming is non-point sources. I think if you went in and went to every farm and handed out uh, about $150,000 each farm, you'd see even more improvements. So the, the one thing that everyone agrees on this, whether it's EPA, Department of Environmental Protection, the Bay Foundation, the Bay Commission, the uh, Bay Commission Program, there's so many groups. The one thing they all agree on is Pennsylvania agriculture has been grossly underfunded in efforts to improve the Bay Watershed. And when you say underfunded, give me some numbers. Well, that's, that's the great question. What are the numbers that have actually gone to agriculture? I'm still trying to find out what those numbers are. There is money associated with the Bay Watershed, and there has been you know, several hundred million dollars that have been gone there. And we're not pointing the, the finger at anyone. We, we're for it. We supported the coalition to help these water projects as well. Of course, in the initial discussions, farmers were also supposed to get money in that and didn't. So the money has basically come from the federal government and how much of that gets to actual farmers versus how much is used to uh, inspect farms versus how much is due to pay employees. You know, it's very iffy, but in terms of how much money has actually gone to farms for on the farm, that, that's up in the air. There have been cost share programs over the years, which are helpful. There's also a lot of farmers on wait lists to get money for cost share programs to do even more. We've never said that the solution is over, that just because farmers have paid for all these things that they've done, that they're more cannot be done. More does need to be done, and farmers are more than willing to do it, and I think they've shown that by how much money they've spent on their own to do it, as well as cost share programs. A little bit more assistance in the cost share would help improve things even more. You know, I have to get back to the question of why farmers would make the improvements. I mean, what incentive do they have other than, I mean, are there, I don't know, are there fines, are there violations that they're charged with. Why did farmers in Pennsylvania and probably the other states take these things on on their own? Well, there, there's a number of reasons. One is obviously it's the right thing to do. Uh, they want to, and they live, what people forget is farmers live on the land where they farm. Most of them get their water that they drink from wells on their farm. So they want to make sure their water is clean for themselves and their animals, but they care about the environment as well. 
and they care about fresh water, and they don't want to be, quote unquote, polluters. They want to do the right thing. Also, in some cases, many of these best management practices that they utilize actually, in the long term, can be economically benefit, beneficial to them. Uh, some things like using uh, no-till, uh, it helps make your soil even healthier with the use of cover crops. It helps reduce runoff. So when you have uh, drought-like conditions, sometimes your land is holding the water more, so your crops grow in unfavorable situations. So there are some economic benefits to it too, but it's very costly, and the upfront costs are difficult, and as uh, Secretary Redding was talking about, the last two years have been very difficult years for farmers in Pennsylvania. Uh, most dairy farmers have been losing money. The price of milk has declined steadily over the last couple of years, as well as you know, your, your row crops, you know, your corn, soybeans prices have been down, and it's been uh, very difficult times to make money, so there's not that extra money, A, to buy equipment or do upgrades on the farm, but also maybe to pay for more environmental friendly practices. As I mentioned, uh, we have uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation on the program tomorrow. If uh, the Pennsylvania Farm Association farm could uh, ask a question of Farm Bureau, I'm sorry, uh, could ask a question of uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, what would it be? I don't know that we specifically have a question for them. We've been involved. We have people in meetings, the same meetings where there's representatives from the foundation as well, and from other representatives within the entire six states and the District of Columbia there. Uh, these issues are talked about, they're monitored. I, I think that, uh, again, they, uh, they come from one perspective, we come from another, but we are certainly for improving the environment. We feel, again, our farmers have not only done a lot, they've done a lot more than people have ever recognized, and I think uh, even some of the comments I've heard from them lately have been saying the same thing. Farmers need more resources. Farmers need more money. So I think we're on the same page uh, with that. I think what has been uh, most difficult for our farmers to hear, though, is after everything they do, it seems like everyone's always pointing the finger at farmers and agriculture versus anybody else, and we think that's unfair. Mark O'Neill is uh, the Media and Strategic Communications Director with the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau. Mark, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Coming up, uh, it's the new program 1A that's coming up uh, right after Smart Talk at uh, 10 a.m. Today, uh, Joshua Johnson will be looking at the Affordable Care Act and uh, what it looks like under the incoming uh, Trump administration. And we're going to be doing something on Smart Talk uh, with the ACA and what that means for uh, Pennsylvania in particular with uh, WITF's transforming health reporter Ben Allen here in the coming weeks. Uh, so obviously this is a big issue, something that you hear about very, very often, uh, but uh, 1A will be taking a look at it from a national point of view. Um, here coming up right after Smart Talk. We are broadcasting live from the 2017 Pennsylvania State Farm Show. Uh, if you'd like to come out and uh, see us, we're here for about another half hour. Curious George is going to be with us right after this, uh, so bring the kids as, as well. Uh, we are at the Wise Exposition Center, the Lancaster Farm Stage, so uh, just a perfect location right in the very middle of everything going on here at the Farm Show, right off the food court, in fact. You know, when we hear the term family farm, most often we think about generations of farmers, a grandfather who farmed and handed it down to his son, whose own son or daughter took up farming. That's why the Shaw family of Blue Mountain Farms 
and fiber mill in Dauphin County uh, are so unusual. And joining us is Angie Tyler and Ashley Shaw of Blue Mountain Farms and Fiber Mill. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks yeah, thanks for having, for having us. All right, now when I say so, uh, so unusual, I guess I better get to your story because that makes it sound like you're odd or something like that. <laughs> but uh, Angie, we spoke on the phone the other day, and I have to tell you that one of my coworkers, one of my colleagues, Joanne Casera, uh, was at your open house about a month ago and came back raving. She says, you have to, got to talk to the Shaw family. And when I heard your story, I said, you know what? You're right, because you do have an incredible story. As I just described, when people talk about family farms, it's usually that generation to generation. But yet, your farmers, your family, that you're now farmers, but it didn't start out that way. How did it happen? No, not at all. <clears throat> Excuse me. We actually started the whole, you know, try getting your kids involved in things, sports, dance, all those activities. Nothing worked. Uh, until Nothing worked. That makes it sound like actually were you a lousy dancer? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> just didn't catch my interest as much as the 4-H program when we got started okay. into it. So. All right. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't until we attended the farm show, we saw the animals, we saw the activities, and it was pretty much a rabbit spinning, sitting on a lady's lap while she was spinning from it. My daughter said, "I have to have one," and we went to the rodeo. My son saw the mini horses. I have to have one, and we ended up getting them. They were housed in our bar, in our garage, actually. We had the horse before we had the barn. Um, and it just evolved from there and through the 4-H program and all of the programs and activities and opportunities that it offers our 4-H programs. Our, li our current livelihood has become an extension of those projects. So this all started with a rabbit at the farm show? Pretty much. Ashley, what kind of rabbit? Um, I actually saw a lady and she was spinning off of her lap what looked like just hair. And I was just so amazed by it. And then all of a sudden I saw two little ears pop up. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to have one of those. And it was actually a giant Angora rabbit. And um, I was just so amazed that she was spinning right from the rabbit. And I was just hooked ever since that day. And my current full-time career is basically what started from that moment at the farm show. How old were you then? Um, I was 11 years old and we were just coming here as a family, just going through as public, looking at all the different exhibits and animals. And um, I actually met that lady later on at our family yarn, uh, yarn store at my grandmother's. And she had a, an Angora rabbit in her car and asked me to go watch it while she went shopping. And so I went out there and played with it. And later that week, she had contacted me and I went down and picked up Primo, my giant Angora rabbit. And then I always tell people they're kind of like laced potato chips and you can't just have one Angora rabbit. <laughs> um, so it kind of spiraled from there. And now I currently raise, show, and breed um, Angoras, French, English, giant, and satin Angoras with my sister. And we travel all across the country and show them. And we also harvest their fiber um, several times throughout the year and we use it in our fiber mill to turn it into kind of part of our livelihood. So Tyler, were you with the little horse? Uh, yeah, that, I was here for our very first farm show together as a family and we decided that we were gonna uh, live out the whole, the whole farm uh, experience and, and go to the uh, rodeo that first year and we saw a small miniature horse and my sister and I 
were we had kind of wanted a horse before that, but my mom was saying, "Oh, we don't have enough room. We so only go with have a, a couple horse. acres." <laughs> and we said, "Well, there we go. There's a smaller horse, so we can have that." So the first thing my sister and I did when we got home that night is we started doing our research and we got out a jar and started jam- jamming every dollar, quarter, or anything that we could find in the house or save up, and we saved up enough money and. My older sister Ashley and I, we bought our uh, first horse, and that was even before we even had a barn, so we're pretty notorious for putting the cart before the horse sometimes, <laughs> but we always figure out a way to make it work, and uh, we do it together as a family, so it, it kind of always works out for the best anyway. Angie, how did that conversation go? I mean, when did you know that there was the potential for this being your livelihood, that this is what you wanted to do for your jobs, for your careers, and as a family. Um, Tyler always says, or he lives by the whole rule, love what you do and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Um, doing. How old were you when you said that, Tyler? Uh, it didn't take very long after we started getting involved. I would say I was probably around 10 when I started so bringing those, those words in my parents' ears. So your 10-year-old son, brought that to your attention yeah i'm sure i'm sure someone much wiser <laughs> and a little more oh that sounds pretty wise to me yeah <laughs> probably drilled that into him <laughs> but talk about the conversation it we we were a homeschooling family and we often do things a little bit differently instead of reading it in a book we try to experience it and that's just one of those things we just when my kids are passionate about something, we do try to offer that as an opportunity and allow them to experience it and make the most of it. And it has just led to this. And So it started with an Angora rabbit and then a little horse. And now you have a whole lot here. We're going to talk about the fiber mill. But what are all, all the things that uh, Blue Mountain Farms and Fiber Mill, before we get to the Fiber Mill, but Blue Mountain Farms, what are all the things that you do on the farm? Well, it all started, we originally had the yarn shop, and my daughter and I, we had the interest more or less in the, the natural fibers, the, all the other aspects of it. The and it spinning. wasn't just the rabbits, it was sheep? And, no, it was, right. it was. It evolved more than just the rabbits. And we started hoarding our own fibers from our own animals because we knew that this was something that we wanted to do. And when my daughter was getting ready to graduate from college, one of the things that she had to do was prepare a business plan uh, with our finance instructor. And she went to him and said, does it have to be pretend or can I do it on a real business? He said, go for it, I'll help you. And um, my son also piggybacked on that for his high school graduation project and the two of them work together so we have actually several phases to our whole plan and what we what we're hoping to do and we've accomplished phase one which was indeed the fiber mill and we're working on additional steps towards the rest of our plan which is where Tyler starts doing some things with the farming as well so what are some of those things Tyler uh, well I a couple years ago probably about seven years ago I we have a lot of 4-H projects a lot of 4-H animals and uh, I said to my mom one day I said well we're spending more money on the hay than 
if we would just take one year of the hay money and put it towards equipment and I said I'll go out I'll knock on doors I'll procure land and start farming and so that's what I did I was about 14 at the time and I went out and I started talking to my neighbors and I picked up about five acres that first year and uh, now I this past summer I was farming a little over 200 acres and uh, mostly hay crops and a little bit of vegetables and field corn but uh it all started as just another extension of our 4-H projects to help make it more economical to feed our 4-H animals. And uh, then it ended up, I started selling some of the hay to buy better equipment, and it just kind of spiraled from there. And now that uh, I'm graduated, I, I farm pretty much full-time, and uh, I also help in the fiber mill couple days of the week and I'm the mechanic so uh, needless to say as far as the mechanic goes I don't really want my phone to ring too much. (laughs) (laughs) Well you know I one of the things that really sticks out to me is that uh, you know an an issue and we really didn't talk about it here on today's program and I have talked about it in the past is that one of the challenges agriculture is facing is young people who are getting involved because let's face it it is hard work. It is hard work, and uh, many people your own age would choose to find a job that maybe pays a little bit more, where they don't have to work as hard. Why did you guys decide that this is what you wanted to do? As far as agriculture goes, I think it's it's a it's a very interesting industry, and you really have to love what you do and do what you love because, it, it, like you said, it doesn't pay the best especially in the past couple of years as far as uh, you know being out in the fields and growing crops and relying on that as an income but uh, you know it's it's a real passion uh, it, even if you're involved in agriculture and you try to get out of it it's not it, it's in your blood it sticks with you for life and uh, whether it, it's a full-time career for you or you just help as a young kid with the neighbor farm a few days over the summer it it just it gets in your blood and it sticks with you for the rest of your life well yeah your dad uh also works another job besides working on the farm well you you have an incredible story and i have to tell you how much i admire uh, just what you have done as a family Uh, you know i don't want to get away without uh, giving location angie blue mountain farms and uh, fiber mill is located where um, our, our fiber mill is actually located um, at our home and where our farm is as well. It's at um, 605 Less Than Tier Lane, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's uh, right off of the Fishing Creek exit um, in, right outside of Harrisburg. If there were people who wanted to know, I, I know you have a website. You have a website, uh, and we didn't talk about beef, cattle, goats, or anything else. But I encourage everyone to go to, what is the website? Um, BlueMountainFarms.net. That's easy to remember. Uh, BlueMountainFarms.net. I encourage everyone to go there because there is so much more to learn about the Shaw family and Blue Mountain Farms and Fiber Mill. Just an incredible story. Thank all of you for being with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks. Hope you have a great week. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
We are broadcasting live from the 2017 Pennsylvania Farm Show. I'm Scott Lamar here on WITF. Uh, if you would like to come out, say hello. We are in the Wise Exposition Hall, the Lancaster Farm Stage. And I'm telling you what, just a, a great location right in the center of everything, right off the food court. And uh, we really, really like an opportunity to get to say hello to you and meet you. And I see that uh, Curious George is here uh, as well for the kids. So even when uh, WITF Smart Talk is uh, when we're off the air today, you can bring the kids out and see Curious George till noon. Okay, I'm told it's till noon. So, you know, one of the things that uh, you don't hear this term very often, but once you do, you get to thinking about it and you think, boy, that's a, that's a, that's a good idea and it sounds like a good time. Agritourism, basically it's vacationing on a farm and seeing and witnessing all the work being done to produce food and other products. The Pennsylvania Farm Vacation Association helps to market what has to be considered a unique experience, especially for those who have never been on a farm. Joining us is one of those member farms, Gary Schubert of Hummer Haven Farms in Juniata County. Gary, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. All right, this is, you know, I've worked on a farm, so I, I know how hard the work is, but there are so many people out there, and earlier in the program we heard uh, Secretary of Agriculture Russell Redding talking about people who don't know where their food comes from, they've never been on a farm. This seems like something that would be perfect for someone like that. Not only that, we I've made a meeting. I've never been to one. It was called a PA Council of Farm Organizations. So Vince Phillip was there, took me under his wing. The Dairy for Excellence people are there telling me the dairy people are having such a rough year. The Farm Bureau was there. Their farm members are complaining. They go around and I said, boy, I said, we had a bumper year. We <laughs> turned people away. We had so many people. I did a map for Penn State. I put Penn State in the middle and drew lines four hours in any direction. That's over 35 million people. So everybody says, well, who's your market? Our market is everybody. There's there's anybody with kids. We have grandparents that bring grandkids that just want to give them that farm experience. We have adults that just want to see where their food comes from. Kids begging their moms because there's millions of different kinds of farm animals that they can play with. And it just gives them that real experience of kind of get away from the video games and and just being outside and being, you know, next to nature, but still taking care of an animal. Now, you just described uh, the kind of experiences that uh, many people can have, but walk me through it. If uh, if a family came to uh, Hummer Haven Farms uh, today, walk me through what they would be doing. Okay, it's a little chilly out, so last night, I got home and there was a baby goat waiting for me. Now I'm the fat daddy, so I sleep by the stove. So my daughter runs out, now it's really cold out, so she's gotta bring the baby in and dry it. So my wife will do the hair drying, my daughter will fluff it up, they bring it to me, I put it on my belly, cover it with a blanket. If there's twins, she runs out and gets the other one, brings in, does the same thing, goes out, tends the mother, makes sure there's fresh bedding, everything's okay, the mom's okay. She comes back in for the babies and I go, what babies? I don't wanna give them back. They're just like, <laughs> they're so cute, it's not even funny. So right now we're having a lot of baby goats. Uh, there's still a cow to milk. We have eggs to collect. There's not so many right now because it's cold and there's not as much light, uh, very dependent on light. So um, in the summertime, you know, when we get most of the people from April through maybe the end of October, even into Thanksgiving, morning is collecting eggs. They can help 
muck out stalls if they want. They're usually by the third shovel full. They're tired of yeah. that. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> but then there's a cow they can milk by hand if they want to, if they don't want to. Then there's other animals to feed. We have some rabbits. We have lots of chickens, lots of ducks, specialty geese. We have all these conservancy and heritage breeds. And, you know, the kids can really get immersed. Most of our animals aren't in fences. So they're just surrounding people. We have 127 acres. We're surrounded by about another 200 acres. And most of our animals just wander. Now, not the giant horses, but even the mini horses wander, the donkeys, the sheep, the goats. So when somebody opens a hatchback, takes a couple suitcases out, they go back to get the rest of their luggage, and there's always a couple goats in their car looking for treats and going like, hey, we worked hard to get in here. Where's our <laughs> treats? <laughs> so then the people are like, oh, this is so cute that I'm worried about. Oh, my gosh, we're going to get in trouble because maybe they had an accident in their car. Yeah, see, my wife always tells a story when she was like three that a goat chewed on her sweater. Yeah. She's never gotten over that. But, uh, you know, that, that sounds like a lot of fun, but it, it sounds like it's a surprise for many people, even though they have gone to your website probably to set up the trip and set up the time that they're there. When you, you open the hatchback and there are goats there or other livestock, other animals walking around, it, it probably sounds like there's a surprise around every corner. Just about. And they'll have the little girls, or especially see the little girls adopt the kittens. There's always some kittens or cats. You know how it works when you have milk. The other thing is we'll have somebody that swears their eggs come from a carton in the grocery store. Ah. So my daughter has a chicken that will lay, uh, will sit on anybody's eggs. They'll sit on, she'll sit on goose eggs. She'll sit on duck eggs. Now, you can imagine her surprise when she looks back and there's a duck back there. <laughs> but she sits on any... So I had this little girl reach up under this mom. She's very friendly and take an egg out. And she's like, oh, Mommy, he's right. Eggs really come from, do come from a chicken. <laughs> you know, just the amazement that, you know, they just don't really get that connection of where their food, they just think it comes from the grocery store. And we are trying our best to let them know that there's a chain and the chain starts at the farm. So typically when a family comes to your farm or any of the other farms, uh, how long do they stay? Uh, usually it's long weekends, but we've had people stay as long as three weeks. We had somebody from Aberdeen Proving Grounds. I didn't realize they still test live munitions oh, yeah. there. In Maryland, yeah. Yeah. So he comes and he just wanted the peace and quiet. Last year we had somebody from Singapore. And I said, why? And he's like, well, I'm in Washington, D.C. for a conference. And he only wanted to do two things. He wanted to see Niagara Falls and he wanted to stay on a farm. And I, of course, make the mistake, oh, I bet your mountains are way higher than us. And he goes, I have to fly four hours to see a mountain. He has to fly to Japan to see a mountain. But he wanted to stay there because he said there's no open ground anymore. They just keep knocking down buildings and building taller buildings. And he just wanted that openness, the peace of quiet. There's no traffic where I live. There's no sirens. There's just no, it's just animal noises. You might get crickets in the summer and you might get some frogs in the nighttime and maybe three o'clock in the morning the donkey decides to let loose with a hee-haw you know but other than that it's just peace and quiet what about roosters in the morning yep roosters once in a, and even once in a while you get a rooster that'll that'll go off before dawn but not usually but yeah we usually have a couple roosters and that's always funny what one of the older people that came pointed and says well, when does that lay an egg? I said, well, probably not in your lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing what people don't know. And that's probably changed only over the last 40 years or so, last, last 50 years or so. So you, you said earlier that uh, you know, 2016 was a banner year for you. 
And you also said to me before we went on the air that if you were to ask anything here during the program, it would be that you get more farm, more farmers involved in this. Why? What, yeah, what would they have to do? Well, again, it's, it's a little bit complicated in that some township regulations are different than others. We came under a recreation clause. We didn't have so much trouble. Some other ones, there may be a, an inspection or there may be something involved. But more often than not, they're just scared about the insurance. And we have several insurance companies nationwide, Edwards Cash Mutual. There's several insurance companies that will help them walk them through how they can do this so they can let people come on their farm. But a lot of people have done it anyway because maybe at the end of their lane they have a little shack and they sell their produce or whatever and they don't understand, you know, they have a liability when people pull off the road and so this is just a little bit more in that we probably have to have some type of slip and fall insurance and then if you have larger animals, you know, a lot of times you just have to work it out with the insurance company. Well, people think of the negatives right away and, oh, I can't do this because but one of the farms that does the best is called Old Fogey Farm. Their last name really is Fogey. It's Biz and Biff Fogey. They've been doing this for 30 some years. They have three bedrooms upstairs, a long hallway, one shared bathroom, and, and that's common in Europe, and they're busy all the time. And Mr. Fogey told me years ago, Gary, I have made way more money doing this than I ever did farming. That was my next question, is, is this, you know, when we hear that uh, farmers things have been tight over the last couple of years. Uh, is this a good way to supplement your income? Exactly, that's what I said. You never look at it as, now maybe you'll get really big. Like, I, I believe there's a Christmas village in Burnville. Yes. They're a working dairy farm. Um, Jason's Woods was a working bison farm, and I don't know if they still do, but they were, and they still did the, the haunted hay rides and the haunted whatever. So yeah, and, and uh, Mount Hope Winery does the penance. Renaissance Fair. I mean, you can aspire to that, but we're happy to just stay relatively small. We do maybe 40 to 50 families a year. That's enough for us. Then they go out, maybe have an Amish dinner. We have a, a, a young, I shouldn't say young, we have a lady from Reedsville moved to Ickersburg. She'll do the four course Amish dinner uh, for like $18. People from New York go, Gary, that's what an appetizer costs. I, know. I, know. I, 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 I was thinking the same thing. Uh, well, Gary, we only have about a minute left, and I'm glad that uh, you had the opportunity to stop in and, uh, and describe this. I know, I guarantee that there are people listening right now who are saying, that sounds like a great idea. I would like to do it. How can someone who is interested in a, a farm vacation, uh, how can they do it here in, in Pennsylvania? Well, our motto this year is stay, learn, grow. PAFarmstay.com. If you go on PA Farmstay or Farmstays, especially PA Farmstay, the website comes up, number of farms across the state, you can see what the activities are, certain price ranges, whatever you're looking to do, or maybe it's location, maybe you're going out to visit relatives or something, you say, hey, you know, I'm not going to stay with them and bother them, maybe I can stay on a farm nearby, or we, we get a lot of people like that. They'll have relatives come in to visit, and they think it would be nice to stay on a farm. And food and lodging, obviously, is, uh, an, is something that uh, maybe is included or you pay extra for. But uh, Gary Schubert, who is with Hummerhaven Farms in Juniata County. Gary, thank you very much for being with thank us Thank you, Scott, so very much. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation about their latest report card, also about Teen Health Week. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional.